Well, greetings, mi gente. Welcome to Café with Comadres. We are Latinas meeting at the intersection of healing, faith, and justice. Three Latinas at this table, but everyone is welcome here. My name is Karen Gonzalez, and I am joined by my comadres, Sandy Ovalle Martinez. Hola, hola. It's so good to be with y'all for our second episode today. And also by Jennifer Guerra Aldana. Hola, saludos. Qué bonito estar juntas otra vez. So on today's episode, episode two, we're discussing race and Latinidad. Now, if you're a Latina, you're already aware that racism and anti-Blackness run deep in our communities. You might have heard terms like uh, pelo malo or bad hair in reference to hair of a curlier texture or of a coarser density. And you might have heard that horrible, insidious saying, mejorar la raza, which translates loosely as the aspiration to marry into whiteness so that you have whiter children. So for me, this conversation is deeply personal and also painful. Half of my family is mixed race, European and indigenous, and half of them are Afro-Guatemaltecos. There was a lot of preference given to whiter grandchildren in my family, and I internalized much of this overt anti-Blackness. I was hurt by it, and I hurt others because of it. My anti-Blackness mostly came out in the form of rejection of my Afro-Guatemalan family members. So I want to set up this misa by telling you a story. I got my first Guatemalan passport when I was seven. My second grade self read proudly from its biographical data page because under this or skin tone, it said morena clara or light brown. I was thrilled. I turned to my dark skinned Afro Guatemalan brother and I said, I'm lighter than you as if it were some kind of achievement or some kind of victory over him. And truth be told, I did believe it somehow made me better to be lighter than him. It was the subtle but harmful message that I had internalized, not only from my family, but from my whole culture. The worst insult you can call anyone in Guatemala were to tell them they were indigenous or black. The world outside of Latinidad might think of all of us as a big brown mass, but we know that Latinx people come in all shades. And yet the legacy of colonialism has left us with a subtle but violent hierarchy in our communities. At the very top are white Latinx people of European ancestry, followed by mestizos, those of us of mixed indigenous and European ancestry. And then at the very bottom are indigenous and Afro-Latinx people. All of this is further complicated by power dynamics, economic access, and standards of beauty. So we begin each conversation by checking in. And I wanna start by saying that none of us at this table are indigenous or Afro-Latinas. We are all three mestizas. And we're aware of the voices that are not at this table. And we're having this conversation in part to leverage our privilege. I also want to note that the word mestizo that we're using to define 
a mixed race identity is very problematic. The terms mestizo and mestizaje have been used as anti-Black terms that promote whitening through race mixture. Now, all of that said, it's also a descriptive term for the reality that many of us live. Our ancestors are both indigenous and European. So, comadres, uh, what are you bringing into this space regarding race, mestizaje, and latinidad? So my family makeup, my mom's side of the family, everybody is lighter skin, hazel eyes, blonde by highlights, but also just lighter skin. And my dad's side of the family happens to be shorter in stature and have the beautiful uh, higher cheekbones and uh, the melanin. And so my brother and I both came out looking mixed and When I was a little girl, one of the stories I often heard was of a missionary that came to visit me when I had been first born, a missionary that my parents had been working with in Guatemala. And her first expression to my mom was, Ay, que indita mas bonita. Oh, what a pretty indigenous one. As as if it was a shock, as if it was, um, it was supposed to be a compliment to my mom, but As my mom retells the story, there's always this hinge of pride and also shame (laughs) because she both felt the relief that I was lighter skin and she was aware that there was what I would now call race dynamics that affected the way that I would be seen the rest of my life. And yet for the rest of my life, there was always this narrative of, oof, like, don't be out in the sun too much. I'm really freckly, so it was a lot of concern for my skin, for how dark I can get, uh, for who I would play with. And so it's been something I've carried with me for quite a long time and led to lots of questions and lots of pain and lots of sadness over the ways that the lighter skin was celebrated, but that how it internalized in me the very thing that... Um, colonialism once did on the land in Guate. It it colonized me as well. And so it's a loaded, heavy, shameful reality that I think about often. Yeah, I think this conversation is, it's a complex one because of the different realities that we experience, right? Like I grew up in Mexico uh, in Mexico City, uh, which has its own privilege and power because our our whole country has been very centralized. So the government and everything's very centralized in Mexico City. So just by the nature of being born in Mexico City, I carry a lot of privilege. And then it's a different conversation in the U.S. I think growing up in Mexico, you know, we we were thought we're Mexicans, right? And so there was not any much more nuance than we're Mexicans. And, you know, we have this raza de cobre sort of situation. The um, raza de cobre is like the copper race, but it's sort of like, oh, this new race that is coming is this new mixing of of people that are that are formed into this Mexican identity, and it's very convoluted in some ways. Um, I remember being in school; I think it was around third or fourth grade, and our textbook. We often learn about indigenous cultures, which is also very fascinating to me that it's not the case in the U.S. But in Mexico, we always learn about you know uh, starting with the Olmecas and moving to the 
um, to the Aztecs as the last ones and, and the Mayans and all of them uh, and all of these different great civilizations. And then there's this this civics um, civics textbook, and I, I remember turning through it. And it's talking all about like the different uh, census things. And in one of the pages, there was this Las Etnias uh, page, right? The the ethnic uh, ethnic groups in Mexico City. And who was listed in ethnic groups were indigenous groups that were still, that, that are still among us, right? Like Huicholes, Mixtecos, Zapotecos, Otomis were listed under the Etnias. But everyone else... Uh, was considered just Mexican. So what you know, like I, I think when I think back to that is like, ooh, why did only only some people had ethnic ethnicity attached to themselves? Uh, and there was this assumption that the rest of us were all of us were mestizos. And I think mestizaje has done some harm in erasing like the fullness and the nuance of all that's in our identities. And it's complex because it has also been used to unified a very diverse country, right? Like for, in my case, Mexico. Yeah, so I think even the, the, the realities of context and where that term is used also has, has implications for how we, how we enter into this conversation. I mean, I can keep going, but I like I <laughs> No, Sandy, I think I resonate with so much of what you're speaking about. And I think what's interesting is I find conversations around being mestiza the most harmful, the ones that are trying to recenter the European background as the one that we want to claim or the one that has the most power or privilege or... Honestly, it's just, at least in my family, and particularly in the church background, I think a lot of the realities we talked about with indigeneity, it was that power dynamic of they always were the recipients of our missions trip, but they were never the agents of theology, the agents of <laughs> the things that were like, now we know, I know more about that context, but it was for a long time whenever I would start to raise my voice about something I didn't like, or whenever I would have a little bit too many opinions about the way that people were treated. There was an internal joke in the family and they're like, ay, no seas tan menchu, which now I take as a total sign of pride. But growing up, it was a, it was a saying to shame me because how could I be like this incredible um, Nobel Peace Prize winner, Rigoberta Menchu, who was fighting for the visibility and the rights of indigenous people, particularly women in Guatemala City and all around the country, really. And so it's it is layered and it is filled with lots of erasure. And yet I find myself wrestling with that identifier because it historically describes my background <laughs> and I don't want need to give it power more than a descriptor, but it holds a lot of that is what I actually physically embody. Um, and I recognize it's historical, cultural, sociological and theological mishaps and violence that it has done to fellow siblings. And so, yeah, I resonate with with the layers that you saw as a little girl in Mexico, because I saw the same things in Puerto Barrios, Guatemala. Um, and then when I immigrated, was it all got shuffled in. So <laughs> It's interesting that you mentioned, um, Jennifer, the how people use the term mestizo or the mestizaje, mestiza, to associate more with their European roots. 
Because I think, uh, and as I saw it lived out in my community, is that, you know, my, my dad is, is very, he's darker skin. He's morenito. Leo que tiene piel canela. He has like that cinnamon licking skin. And, um, and so he often says, you know, oh, the Spanish came and did us wrong, right? And in a sense, like we're mestizo, but it's often, I think the harm that it has caused is that it's also allowed people who do benefit from a little bit more whiteness or who don't particularly have a lived experiences of indigeneity to claim much more pain mm. done to them than mm -hmm. what really belongs to us. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Thank you, Sandy. That's an important uh, nuance and distinction. I think, you know, I had an experience this week where I went to the doctor and I had to fill out my race. And they have taken Hispanic Latinx out of race. I don't know if you've noticed that lately on the forms. And right next to it was a box for ethnicity. And that was, you know, Latinx, Hispanic. But under race, I didn't know what to put because I'm not black. I'm not white. You know, I'm not fully indigenous, nor have I suffered the pain of indigenous people here in the Americas. Uh, and so I was really conflicted and I finally just ended up writing mixed race because I didn't want to claim uh, a marginalized identity that I don't truly hold. I identify as a Guatemalteca and I have Afro blood and I have <laughs> indigenous blood and apparently European blood as well. But it's really, really complicated. And I think we could talk forever about mestizaje. But we won't, uh, because we can't talk about race and Latinidad without talking about that C word. And you know the one I'm talking about, colorism. So what is colorism exactly? Well, colorism is a larger structure of inequality based on skin tone. And it's directly related to systemic racism. So colorism exists because of white supremacy. It's a way of describing how people experience racism based on their skin tone, based on how they look. So the closer to white you are, the more privileges you have, and vice versa. The darker you are, the fewer privileges and more difficulties that you're going to face in this life. Now, white Latinx people benefit from colorism, just as the two of you have noted, And they do so even when they don't think they do. So, for example, you might have heard people say, I look white, but I'm not. I'm Mexican or Salvadoran or Puerto Rican. But the fact is that because they're white, they are assumed to have good intentions and they're not threatening to white people because they look just like them. So we can say that white Latinx people experience othering, a feeling perhaps of being excluded of being told they don't belong to their cultural or ethnic group. But is that really discrimination when they still experience all the privileges of whiteness? Now, there's a lot of research that supports that there are so many ways that dark-skinned and Afro-Latinx people are disadvantaged by colorism. There are examples around fewer earnings over a lifetime, fewer career opportunities, less educational attainment, more social exclusion, less safety from harassment by the state and by other people. And lighter-skinned people are perceived as smarter, as more attractive, more qualified, more kind. Uh, we call this the 
halo effect of lighter skin. And lighter skin women are seen as more desirable and as able to marry men of higher status. And of course, we can see that all over Spanish-speaking media, right? You can't watch telenovelas or even the news without seeing a very blonde, blue-eyed Latina giving you the news or portraying your favorite telenovela character. In contrast, darker skin Latinx people experience housing discrimination, job discrimination, and so many educational disadvantages. So, comadres, I want to ask you how you have seen or how you have experienced colorism. Have you ever experienced the halo effect of lighter skin or the horn effect of darker skin? Yes. You know, this is bringing to me, this is bringing back the memory from my college days. I remember uh, one of my sorority sisters was traveling to Mexico City. I was in a Latina sorority, a lot of Afro-Latinx people, a lot of lighter skin, white Latinas, and uh, a lot of immigrants in it. And one of my friends was traveling down, and I happened to be in Mexico City at the same time. And I remember her sharing with me the pain of being in Mexico City and in the country where her parents came from, and her just saying, I just don't know if they'll let me into the clubs. And I remember seeing that pain uh, up close and personally in that moment of like going back into a setting where, you know, she should have been accepted, a setting that, you know, her parents came from and the pain that was there. So yes, I have seen how colorism alienates. It's true that the media, the telenovelas, like all of the media, does often not, like it does not portray the images of of people that are the everyday people of Mexico or, or everyday people of Latin America. And this is why like there are very key figures that have really become uh, significant for people. So we have Selena, right? That is a brown skin Latina with hips. It's a little bit uh, more of a representation. And most recently, um, Yaditza in Roma, Yaditza Paricio in Roma, she is, you know, is, is the first time that we're seeing the representation of indigenous people on TV that has that have more indigenous looks. That, that carry that darker skin with them and that have often been excluded from these spaces. Yeah, Sandy, I agree with you. It, it wasn't, for the longest time, the only representation I saw of myself was Dora the Explorer because in serio, like nobody else had curves and we all went through our Dora the Explorer haircut, right? <laughs> she was a bilingual, curvy, a young girl who was exploring and was had an imagination. And for a long time, I said, you know, that's the only the only thing I can relate to in media is a caricatura. It's a it, it's a it's a children's um, <laughs> it's a children's cartoon. I think one of the first times that I recognized the ways that colorism and colonialism were deep seated in me was in college when I really wanted to study abroad and Many of my Latin American friends actually in college were choosing to go back to their home countries or a country adjacent or close. And there was this like longing to return to roots, a longing to return to the land. And while there was some of that in me, I felt like that wasn't the choice that I wanted to make because I wanted to make a more quote unquote refined choice. And so I chose Spain. 
and particularly Cho Sevilla, because I was really captivated by Torre del Oro, Christopher Columbus moves. And when I went there, my goodness, it was a rude awakening of what I had chosen and the land that I was embodying, because it was a rude awakening of what colonialism did and the shrewd, just shrewd colorism that was a part of all of it. When I was living there and I would open my mouth and I would ask questions, it was so clear that all of this had made its way to my local church in Puerto Barrios, Guatemala, and I had been indoctrinated in this for a very, very long time. And so to this day, there's still comments when I get a little bit too dark. I love the beach and and swim is my uh, my sport of choice. And so whenever I got a little bit too dark in the pool, whenever, um, I mean, m- my mother has a, a layer of obsession with, with skincare and most of it has to do with no te pongas más morenita. Don't get darker than you need to be. And granted, SPF is for everybody and we should wear it. But there's a level of obsession with it that is directly uh, tied to all of this. And then later on in grad school and as I started to get my first jobs, I also started to notice a phenomenon where whenever something would happen, like you said, Karen, I was the safe Latina to approach. And so there was many moments where something would happen in the news or something would happen within the institution. And then I started to notice that I was the person that the white leaders would come and be like, Jen, can we pick your brain about what's happening? And can we understand? And I thought to myself, why is it that you're approaching me when there was a whole room of people that experienced this reality? And thankfully to good mentors, friends that challenged me and said, because Jen, you're the one that they feel like they can approach. And it quickly became okay, well, then how can I be subversive with this? How can I be mindful of this? Because if it's not going to stop happening, well, then how can I make sure that what I speak and comes out of my mouth actually is representative or at least moves into more, like you said, Karen, how how can I leverage that if it's not going to go away? And it was only in the last five years that I really came into full acknowledgement and ownership of that leverage. Because before that, para ser honesta, I was still like, I don't know what this is. I don't really get it. (laughs) I'm just just here. I'm experiencing things and I'm trying to figure them all out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Jen, for being vulnerable with that. You know, I've had experiences of being confused for nannies, um, custodial staff. I walked once into a work meeting and, and I'm a director level person at my job and the external vendor that I was meeting with actually thought I must be the assistant and asked me to get him coffee and to let the director know that he was there. Mm -hmm. And it's so jarring to be on the other side of it and to be a victim of that kind of colorism where people don't even look you in the eye. They just make assumptions about who you Mm -hmm. are and what you do. But on the other side, You know, I am lighter, for example, than some of my Afro-Guatemalan relatives. And I know I have experienced privileges that they haven't because of having a lighter skin tone or looking like, as Sandy was saying earlier, looking like what people think Latinx people Mm -hmm. look like, right? Everyone assumes we all look like mixed race, indigenous European people. And so it's really complex and difficult to you know, process or know uh, what to do with all of it. 
Yeah, and particularly when it happens in the moment, I think it's hard. I, I often find myself reflecting back on moments, and it's only been till since recently that I've been so invited and encouraged and challenged to reflect constantly on that reality that I'm now able to respond to it a little bit more quickly because I may have been the the Latina in the room when that happened to you, Karen, and I don't know if five years ago I would have responded and said, hey, did you notice that that was actually a racial aggression towards our director? Like, can I actually talk to you about this after this meeting? Um, where today I feel a little bit more uh, committed to being like, hey, as the quote unquote approachable one, we're going to need to talk about what I just saw. Because of my friendship with you, there's a commitment I then have to lighten the load of the racial conversation that needs to be addressed. But sometimes when you're the recipient of it, when I've been the recipient of racial dynamics, it's kind of an out-of-body experience because you're trying to like learn how to breathe and self-regulate as you're trying to have this engagement. And oftentimes for me, the words escape me and all I want to do is get myself out of there. And I've been so grateful to have been the recipient when that's happening to me in the moment uh, there's a particular time I will never forget my sister, Joyce Rosario. We were in a situation and someone said something incredibly offensive. And it was this like, I'm trying to catch my breath. I'm trying to have self-regulating moment. And she just jumped in. And I was like, oh, Santo Dios, thank you, Jesus, <laughs> that she was there, that she caught it. And that she was so aware of the dynamics that she could just whew, soup right in. And I thought to myself, if there's any a chance that I see that happen to another sister or brother uh, of color, Latinx or not, there's just a responsibility to say, okay, we got to step in and we got to address it and we got to talk about it because that's how it continues to keep its power when it goes unchecked. Yeah, and I think it, it is that being aware of who we represent and what we represent, how people perceive us and how important that is, that people's perception of us because of our skin tone in particular and our features, they make assumptions, right? And they, they define whether we are safe or not to approach. They define to what level they can trust us. And what I really regret or really uh, maybe resent is the right word, with this narrative that we were all Mexican, that we were all mestizos that was thrown around within me, within my circles uh, growing up and within my family, I think we failed to really see and experience the stories of people around me that had different experiences. So I grew up in, in Mexico City and there were a lot of Asian Mexicans mm -hmm. in Mexico City. And so, in fact, my best friend in middle school, her last name was Fong, F-O-N-G. I never so her as anything else than just Mexican. I had no clue. I just knew that she never invited us to her house, that her house was off limits, and that the one time that we went to her home, she kept the door, you know, semi-open, and we could smell the scent of incense, which was very distinctive because it's it was not a typical scent in, in, in many of, of the other homes. And it wasn't until I had a migration experience and I was in a different context and all of a sudden I was, uh, I was displaced and I was not a part of the majority, uh, the dominant group, that my eyes started being open to like, how did I miss that? Funk is not like a Spanish last name, right? Like it's not like, how did I miss that? And how did I miss Akira, my other classmate who just... Uh, 
was not, um, you know, whom often we never hang out with him. You know, he was like more on his own. And how did I miss? And, and for me, it was there was a lot of Asian Mexicans in, in the mix uh, of where I was. And we failed to experience or to include them. And so I think the the, the thought that we were all Mexican, and, and they were Mexican, they were born in Mexico, they were raised in Mexico, their parents um, had been born in Mexico, they didn't have a recent migration experience in that sense. And yet this narrative of like where mestizos were Mexican not only erased indigenous people, but also erased Asian Mexicans, it erased Black Mexicans, and it did them in, in different ways, right? Like for Indigenous uh, people in our mix, there was a very evident awareness that skin color was was the thing, but there was was a thing that left people out, and stature. But uh, for these other groups, we didn't have rubrics of what what exactly it was that uh, that left them out, but definitely we did not have an awareness of of um, of other experiences. Excellent. Well, comadres, it's been my joy to have this conversation with you. It's a hard one, but a good one. And it's one that we need to keep having in our communities. And we are interested in hearing your thoughts, listeners that are also at this table. We're interested in hearing your thoughts about race and Latinidad. And we're grateful that you joined us at the table today. If you like this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes because it helps others to find us. You can also follow us on Instagram at Café with Comadres and leave comments on this episode's post to continue this conversation. If you're interested in the resources used in our research for this episode, I can tell you that there were two that were uh, very important. One was Bad Hair Does Not Exist by Sulma Arsu Brown. And The Color Complex, The Politics of Skin Color in a New Millennium by Kathy Russell, Mitch Wilson, and Ronald Hall. And see you at the next table. Adios, mi gente. Nos vemos. Nos vemos.